and welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. Today we are honoring a bunch of little miracles. Those that once planted into darkness with a bit of water and warmth will germinate and give their energy and life to the plant that grows out of them, allowing us to eat and live in return. Today we are speaking about seeds. For millions of years, the cycle of germination, growth, death and re-germination for the next generation of seeds has defined evolution and our human existence. The very existence of seeds, in fact, is the reason we have agriculture today, which started with the cultivation of seeds some 10,000 years ago. Now, with a handful of companies controlling the majority of our seed supply and the genetic manipulation of seeds, the future of our seeds is at stake. We're speaking with the filmmaker of a new documentary on seeds called Open Sesame today here on An Organic Conversation. Sunshine, soil, water and love. A story of the world's seed supply, our topic in this hour. That's what's coming right up. We are your hosts, Helga Hilbert. And Sitarani Palomar. I like that we start every show with a little musing, like um, an observation or an appreciation of the world, because the show is about relationships, too. And our, our week's review. Our week's yeah. review, exactly. <laughs> and so um, this what's, what's happening for you this week? Well, it sounds I'm, like you have something <laughs> really burning. Well, I'm reading a book um, right now that's set in Scotland, and they talk about these lush rolling hills. And while I was reading it, I was looking up some photos so I could really create the scene in my mind. And then this morning, driving through Sonoma and looking at California's rolling hills, they're still green from the rain that we got earlier this year. And there were flocks of sheep and men in hats herding them. And for about a five-second span while I was driving by this vineyard, I felt like I had been transported to this this time and this location in the book that I'm reading. And it got me thinking about how our imagination might be the most entertaining tool that we have at our disposal. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I, I know some people live there a lot, imagining things, you know, transporting them into different countries or different cultures or, or Whatever, whatever your imagination might do. I'm an extroverted person. And so for me, I see the entire potential of a, of a scene, be it traffic and what could happen, and really as a possibility in front, of, in front of my eye. So I rarely go into the realm of imagination, or maybe that is my realm of imagination, mm. but I, I never imagine that the trees could just de-root themselves and fly off into the sky because of a book I just read and what that would be like. I'm so overwhelmed in the moment of, of my surroundings or holding every possibility, taking into uh, every possibility into consideration. That is enough, enough of what my brain can hold. That's basically the limit. <laughs> hmm. Well, I wonder, I mean, you mentioned that you, you're an extroverted personality, and maybe that's part of the difference. I mean, I'm a, an introverted personality in, in a lot of ways, not that it's all that black and white to begin with, but maybe it's a, it's a little bit more of an introverted quality, possibly, to be really like deep in your imagination and imagine scenes playing out in front of you that may not be yeah, entirely it, possible in that moment, or... I don't know. And introverted and extroverted usually is understood in how you come across, meaning the quieter person is the introvert, the the louder person is the extrovert. That's not actually what I mean. I mean, what, what stimulates me the most is not my internal, internal life or internal mm -hmm. dialogue, mm -hmm. but it's what's happening around me. And I see the possibility 
between connections and I, I really see the, the interconnectedness of it all and if this car you know moves a little funny I'll pay attention to it for the next 10 miles while I do something else and you know pay attention to other traffic whatever but this will never leave me because it's a it's a possibility that this uh -huh. will happen again or that that person is really distracted so I'm already busy <laughs> dealing with the reality of my extroverted world happening all at the same time. Well, and you are an extremely <laughs> safe driver. I, I can vouch for oh, that. Well, and it's an interesting thing just to foreshadow a little because next week we're going yes. to have a really special guest on talking about psychology and we'll talk about extroverted and introverted worldviews and also how to enrich both so you have a, a richer life. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting to hear how different we experience um, our own imagination or possibility. Yes, and, and yeah, great episode um, next week little foreshadow on the cross-section of faith and psychology. Yes. So check that cool. out. This hour <laughs> is about our seed supply, sunshine, soil, water, and love, the story of the world's seed supply with an amazing filmmaker and a brand new documentary that just came out on seeds called Open Sesame. But as always, before we dive into that topic fully, I think it's time for the update from the world of health and beauty What's going on there, Sita? Here's Sita Rani Palomar, a.k.a. Chef Sita, and her holistic bite. Thanks, Helga. Well, winter is on its way out in, I think, most parts of the country. And before it's gone, I really need to make sure I've gotten my fix of soups. I am an absolute soup fanatic. And I know a lot of people who are kind of like, I don't get soups. I feel like I missed out on a meal. It's not that hearty. And I think that, you know, there's a personal relationship that people have. Some people are crazy about soups and some people don't like them. But some people also have never had a really good cream soup or the cream soups they have had have so much butter and so much milk and heavy cream that they just don't feel like it's something they can eat for dinner or lunch or on a regular basis because of the density of calories and fat. So what I want to do today is share with you my simple formula to get perfect cream soup every time and it doesn't require any cream whatsoever. So you start by sauteing one onion or a leek and I think that both of those give you a really creamy base to begin with just because they're um, high starch and, and just natural sugars and when you puree it, it, it it's really really creamy if you start with a, a good white onion or yellow onion or a leek. And then whatever is going to be the, the vegetable base of your soup, be it carrot or spinach or broccoli or mushroom or asparagus or celery or any combination thereof, get about one and a half pounds of that vegetable or a combination of vegetables. And then add four cups of water or stock. And then here's where the, the key piece comes in. The thing that's actually going to thicken it is either going to be a quarter cup of oats, like rolled oats, or one cup of diced potatoes. And both of those are starchy ingredients. And as they cook in the stock with the other vegetables, they're going to release their starches. You can even use basmati rice. There's an excellent recipe for a cream spinach soup in the Greens cookbook. And the, they call for a quarter cup of basmati rice because it gives it that Indian flavor. So one cup of diced potatoes or a quarter cup of oats or a quarter cup of basmati rice into the stock and the vegetables. And while it cooks, 
the starches are going to make it creamy. And then you puree the entire thing. And so all of those bits of potato and bits of grain, whatever it was that you put in there, get completely emulsified with your vegetables. And what comes out is this really luscious soup that doesn't have any cream added. And you can add more water or stock to that if, if it ends up coming out really thick like yogurt adding some some more water or stock until you get it to the consistency of heavy cream is going to make it just that really luscious and and thick and warming soup. So whenever I do this, I have to make extra because I usually end up with about four cups, which I honestly could eat on my own. And I frequently share, but I try and make extra so I can freeze some and have enough to get me through the last few cold weeks of winter. And that's this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. Yes, you mentioned Green's Restaurant, the, the cookbook Green's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that from Green's Restaurant in It San is Francisco? from Green's Restaurant in San Francisco. Really defining mm-hmm. California cuisine, the first restaurant, I believe, in the nation maybe, that in the 70s offered an all-vegetarian mm-hmm. fare and has done so ever since. So if you ever come to the Bay Area here in San Francisco, right on the waterfront, Green's Restaurant, big shout out. Check it out. Wonderful job there. And yes, that cookbook is delightful. Uh, You also said winter is on its way out. What a winter it was. I read a few weeks ago, at one point, 115 million Americans were in sub-degree temperatures, exposed to sub-degree temperatures, anywhere between 0 to 20 to even 40 degrees minus. So yes, perfect timing to (laughs) have a holistic (laughs) bite on soup. And Mm. even if you're still dealing with winter, wherever you may listen to the show, it is on its way out. Hope is coming. Spring is coming. And that brings us to spring and seeds and germination. And that's the topic in this hour. We are speaking with a filmmaker about a brand new documentary on seeds that's called Open Sesame here in this hour on Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. For millions of years, the cycle of germination, growth, death, and regermination of the next generation of seeds has defined evolution and our human existence. The very reason that we have agriculture today, which started some 10,000 years ago, is the cultivation of seeds. There's a brand new documentary. It's called Open Sesame. And we are speaking with the filmmaker now who's joining us from Brooklyn, New York, Sean Kaminsky, about his filming of Open Sesame, the story of seeds. Sean, are you with us? I am. So great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. 
So Sean, we've watched the film and and one thing that I found really interesting was that you're approaching the story of seeds from two different directions. Um, from one direction, you're looking at seeds as the foundation of 90% of all the foods that we eat. And then from the other end, you're looking at seeds as an endangered species that's under threat by bioengineering. I'm curious, before we get into details of the film, to find out from you, what was it that moved you to create this story? How is it personally important to you? Right. Well, you know, I, th- I think the seeds were kind of planted a long time ago, and then I forgot about them. And then a few different things germinated them. But, you know, really all started um, back in Winnipeg. I grew up in Winnipeg, which is, you know, a decent-sized city in Canada. And my grandmother had grown up on a farm. And, you know, I was always curious about that, but she, she didn't like talking about it. And I guess that made it seem even more mysterious and enigmatic. And I didn't learn until later that she was actually a little ashamed of that part of her life, which is, you know, sad. But you know, I think they were poor, and I guess you know, moving to the city was kind of a big deal for them. So she just wanted to leave that part of her life behind. But... Anyway, she still had a backyard garden, and I remember she had, you know, all these seed catalogs. And I just loved looking through mm-hmm. those seed catalogs and reading about the varieties. And um, I don't know, it just it just seemed so full of promise and and excitement somehow. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but I don't. I mean, I don't know if a kid today would find it very interesting. Let's let's say that. I didn't have an iPhone to play with, so when I had to go <laughs> to my grandma's house, I loved sort of fishing around through her things. And those are one of the things that I, I really liked looking at. And then, you know, later with my sister and my mother, I remember planting a flower seed called a Johnny Jump Up. And, um, the, you know, we planted them one year, and then the next year they kept on coming back. And I remember being so excited by that, and I, I, I didn't know if they were traveling under the ground. or It just seemed so amazing that we just planted these tiny seeds, and they appeared everywhere. So then that was pretty much that was it for seeds. And, you know, we lived in a city, we had a small garden, but I went to film school, and I... I did other things, and and now I live in in New York, so that kind of part of my life was sort of forgotten until I was at uh, an open-source video conference, you know, of all places, and this conference was looking at ways to keep the sharing of video free and open to everyone, and I think, I can't remember if I'd seen Food, Inc., or I can't remember what movie I'd seen, but I was thinking about uh, speed patenting, and I was concerned about what was happening in that realm of things, and I realized, well, you know, these seed companies... This is an open source. This is closed, patented technology. Well, what happens when our food or the source of our food becomes more like information? It's just ones and zeros in a database. Mm. So I was actually going to do more of an experimental short film that looked at what happens when seeds and food becomes information. And just in researching that, I learned about the massive seed extinction that we've experienced. I mean, it's estimated that 90% of the crop varieties that were grown in the early 1900s today are no longer grown, they're completely extinct. And I was kind of floored because I'd already been working on other environmentally themed films, and I, I was surprised no one had ever mentioned this to me. I mean, certainly if an animal species you know, was going extinct, even if they were kind of a rare species, you know, we often hear about it on the news or read about it online. So I felt you know, this is, needs to be a bigger project. Vandana Shiva was in New York, and I met her, and she invited me to come up to Navdanya, and the whole project just kept on you know, expanding from there. Well, you bring up a really good point of diversity. We talk about diversity in our food supply on this show regularly, if not almost every week. We have a segment called What's in Season, and it's really fascinating when people hear that there are thousands of varieties of potatoes and thousands of varieties of corn and and so on, apples. Like, really, you can you can almost go down every variety of produce and you find a plethora of 
alternative or, or additional varieties by the hundreds at least, if not by the thousands. And they are there for a reason. Sure. They grow in different uh, regions and different altitudes. They have different drought resistance or heat resistance. It's, a, it's this entire web of life in our food supply that is now really coming down to one or two, maybe three varieties in the grocery store of those produce items. Mm-hmm. When people watch your movie or in, in your interviews or when you educate the public, now with a handful of companies controlling the majority of our seed supply and the genetic manipulation of seeds, what have you seen produces the greatest aha moment for people learning about the value and the world of seeds? Well, I think you're really hitting on it with everything you've been saying about you know, the loss of diversity. I think the fact, the aha moment is that all that diversity is extremely valuable. I mean, sometimes people hear that we've got, you know, we still have thousands of varieties, and we do have thousands of different varieties, and people think, well, how come that? Don't we have enough, you know? I mean, I don't need maybe a thousand varieties of apples to eat. I'm happy with my one or three kinds, or even if I had 20 kinds, I'd be delighted. Mm -hmm. But it's not just about taste. That's an important part. It's not just about the taste. It's also about we don't know what some of these traits might give us in the future. Uh, You know, some of the traits Some of the diversity allows the seeds and the plants to adapt to certain you know, climate conditions. And our climate is changing so drastically. We don't know the varieties that we'll need or the traits that we'll need in the future. So that is a big aha moment for people when they realize that this diversity is a wealth. And it's not something that can be built overnight. It can be lost very quickly. But it took, you know, 12,000 years of agriculture of seeds being passed from hand to hand, grown in their envir- own environment carefully selected. You know, this is our genetic commons, our genetic heritage. And it not only has value on that basis and that it's part of our heritage, but it also has unknown value of immense, you know, immense value if we Mm -hmm. need a certain trait to combat a certain disease in a plant test in the future. And we can't lose those. We can't lose that diversity. It's an interesting uh, point you're making, because the argument that you often hear is that the the most important part of a society is its resilience. And of course, to a a large degree, that is true. But what makes society survive actually is adaptation. And so what you're saying is that the It's not about, you know, flavor, taste. It's it's really not about the attributes that we directly benefit from. Maybe nutrition is different because, you know, a thousand apple varieties, there's a whole spectrum of, of slightly different nutrition available perhaps. But an apple is an apple after all. But nature invented these thousands of subspecies and varieties to create a web that is highly resilient and adaptable to what you're saying, climate change changes. And since we don't know and understand the full mix of things, uh, losing that web, it gives us less opportunities to, to mix and match within a species. That's that's what you're saying, right? Right. Do, well, I'd like to comment on one thing, though. I don't yeah. want to minimize the importance of taste, because that actually is you know, very important. And oh. often the taste <laughs> point to certain Be my alkaloids or chemical parts. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. This, this show is all about taste and pleasure, and that's critical. But it's very critical, yeah. you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why these varieties have been bred. And sometimes a unique taste also points to a unique resistance to a pest. You know, sometimes they can go hand in hand as well. Absolutely. You know, it's that, it's that dance of, of agriculture where sometimes it's a beautiful color that has been selected for year after year. And I mean, that's so precious as well. Do we want to lose the unique color of a tomato? You know, that's a different type of value, but is that any 
you know, less important than the diversity. I mean, I think they go hand in hand. Sean, so you're, we're talking about the the threat of losing all of this as seeds are becoming extinct. What is the relationship between the, the threat of seed extinction and ownership over seeds that we're seeing in a capacity that hasn't existed in, in many previous decades? The large global industrial seed system, they tend to grow in monoculture crops, you know, many, many copies of one variety over and over again, using you know, the same pesticides and inputs on that crop over and over again. And because those farms have squeezed out the small regional farms, immediately we lose a reservoir uh, in terms of what used to be grown in those areas and now is no longer being grown. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is these large seed companies have also purchased uh, medium to small size seed companies over the past, you know, three, four decades and have kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes they, you know, will have bought these uh, seed companies. They'll, they'll just trash what they thought was not valuable in terms of the seed that existed or they're no longer grown. So, I mean, those are two of the large ways that, you know, seeds have become extinct because we used to have this reservoir of diverse farming and then that's been diminished and almost you know, practically disappeared. Luckily, we do have organizations that are working to stop that. We have, you know, organizations like Seed Service Exchange and, you know, certainly small uh, home growers are trying to work against this. And just naturally, people tend to like to grow diversity. No one wants a monoculture in their backyard, luckily. Uh, so we have some small, you know, pockets of resistance and just natural, you know, natural pushback on this. But that's a big force, you know, when you're talking about millions and millions of seeds being grown that are all the same. And that's, you know, that's one of the major reasons. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we're speaking with Sean Kaminsky, director and producer of Open Sesame, the story of seeds. For more information, the website is opensesamemovie.com, who's joining us today from Brooklyn, New York, in this hour of sunshine, soil, water, and love, the story of the world's seed supply. Sean, stay with us. We'll take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back with so much more. We want to talk about seed-saving initiatives and uh, more about your movie. We'll be right back in one second. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And today we're speaking with the filmmaker of a new documentary called Open Sesame, 
opensesamemovie.com for more information. Sean Kaminsky, director and producer who's joining us from Brooklyn, New York today in this hour as we're looking at the world's seed supply. Sean, you made some really good points and I'm, I would still love to get a feel for how the public has responded to the movie so far or the education that you're providing. What was the maybe the most surprising thing you learned from interviewing farmers and seed educators and how has the reaction been in the public to that information and to your movie? Well, one of the things that I was surprised to learn was, you know, when I was uh, interviewing Bill McDormand, who is now the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, I was really surprised to find out that, you know, even if uh, farmers in the Southwest wanted to stop growing uh, soybeans, there aren't enough non-GMO soybeans to replace even that relatively small number of farms if they wanted to move over. So I was really, I always thought that it was kind of maybe farmers didn't understand or it was just a, a choice that they had sort of fallen into. I, I never, it never really occurred to me that we've lost so much of the infrastructure that we mm -hmm. can't just, like if uh, the biotech industry was to disappear, that would actually be a huge problem for mm -hmm. us right now. We don't have anything to replace it. We don't have enough seed growers. The industrialized seed system is so entrenched that we've kind of backed ourselves into a little bit of the corner. So on the one hand, that you know seems a little bit might seem a little bit depressing, and it certainly is a challenge that we need to address. But on the other hand, um, one of the things I learned at seed school and that I learned throughout making the film is that you know, seed saving is not difficult. It's something that is really in our blood. It's part of our heritage, and you know we can plant breed if that's an interest. We can develop new varieties. It's not something that needs to be handed off to large conglomerates and done in specialized labs. This is you know, a really old technique that does require some care and at higher levels it certainly requires education and knowledge. But um, it's something that is in our power to do and that we can empower ourselves to change this system. It's interesting that you point that out because I don't think that's something that I've realized either is that if we if we were to stop as a country relying on the the products that we're getting from the industrialized seed companies that we may not have enough quantity. Is that what the what the point is, is that there isn't enough quantity of non-genetically modified seeds to continue producing the output that we've that we are have come to expect. Yes, exactly. Like the the farms that grow mainly commodity level, you know, soybeans and corn and that kind of industrial output, which we want to get away from. Sure. But on the other hand, those represent calories that go into various products, which we which you know many people do eat uh, for various reasons, mm -hmm. and we don't have the seeds to um, support that without those big conglomerates. So it is, you know, it's a challenging situation. You know, one of the things, though, that can be done is if we stop buying the end products, if we stop buying the packaged foods, the processed mm -hmm. corn, the processed soy, that's kind of a slow way of changing the system, but a powerful way because, you know, these big companies answer to shareholders. And if people stop buying those food, that those food that are grown from those seeds, then they're going to need to start to make changes or their bottom line will suffer. So that's one way of changing it. But mainly the example is if they were to suddenly disappear from the face of the earth, it's just amazing to think that we don't, we can't really feed ourselves because they've taken over so much. So it is, it is something that needs to be changed with uh, intent and with, you know, an eye to really building a strong, healthy, organic seed infrastructure so that we have mm -hmm. something 
it can replace them when people people are stopping eating that type of food and you know their profits are going down people are moving more towards organic so let's make sure that we have a healthy diverse seed community to replace that with Sure, yes. We're speaking with Sean Kaminsky, the producer and director of Open Sesame, a new movie on uh, our world seed supply, opensesamemovie.com. For more information here on in Inorganic Conversation, I'm Helge Helbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And Sean, you, you mentioned a really important fact. It's not about um, not using genetically engineered seeds, for example. It is, there, there are so many aspects of seeds that have been implemented into seeds that if if a farmer gets contaminated even with the pollen of those seeds he might you know accrue a patent infringement we had percy schmeiser on the show two years ago who lost 20 years of seed saving after being drifted in by a gmo seed dust pollen cloud and he could not harvest his crop for that year and lost all of his seeds for 20 years that he and his wife have been saving When we talk about the consumers, what is the single most important thing a consumer can do? You're talking about weaning off cotton, corn, soy, all those mass millions of acres produced single seed variety crops. But really, as a consumer listening to the show right now, what can people do? What's the single most effective thing? Supporting oh, diversity, <laughs> buying from a small farm? What, what is, what's your take? It's so hard to pick one thing. And <laughs> I mean, people often ask that. And I always say, you know, you sort of have to follow your own heart and instinct and what calls to you. I mean, for some people, that means becoming more political and becoming involved in the fight for GMO labeling, which, is, of course, is very important. Um, for someone else, though, it might be to, you know, to get out there and to grow something in your own backyard or on your windowsill. And if you do do that, then I always encourage people you know, to save some seeds from it, pass those seeds around. You know, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, they have a wonderful thing called Seed School, and it's even available as an online course now. So I recommend learning how to save seeds, you know, take, reclaim that power. There's something about just planting a seed, watching it grow, and saving seeds from it that, you know, sort of unleashes um, a force within a person. And that will sort of often dictate, okay, this is the next action I need to take. It's a little hard to explain. Maybe it sounds a little mystical, but that's what I found, you know, in my life. You know, as I started making the film, I, I became a seed saver as I made the film. And the film is done and finished, but my, my journey with seeds continues, you know, as a seed saver and as a grower. And, you know, it's really powerful. So I always encourage people to get out there and, and grow something. And as um, we are talking about the diversity in seeds and the resilience in seeds and the possibility through thousands of varieties, of course, that concept applies to us as humans, too. So what you're saying is there's no one size fits all answer just by us buying from local organic farms, which is a great way, of course, to support Uh, diversity and, and local economies, but it is really up to the individual to find their hook, their own seed, uh, whatever germinates right. there, whatever passion will get started around this topic and, and really around food and democracy as a whole. That's very true. And I, but I, I just wanted to, I think you brought up a really important point about, you know, how about the local aspect. And you know, when people are buying that local food, they can also ask the farmer, where did your seed come from? And, you know, that's another issue, too, is that our, our local issues are a little bit different. GMO labeling, that fight, you know, exists in different states of uh, germination all throughout the country. 
And so we have different growing conditions. I mean, we really, really need to reclaim seeds as a local resource as well. So look around your community. Do you have seed libraries? If not, maybe you might want to start one. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Newburn has great resources on that. So, but I think you make, make, your point is great that, you know, we need to look at this on an individual, but also on a local level. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, lastly. Yeah, Sita. Sean. Well, <laughs> we've certainly been impacted by the movie and I, and I love what you said about it's kind of a mystical thing. It is kind of a mystical thing. And, and one of my favorite moments in the movie occurs early on when you interview people, what makes a seed grow? And, and they get this look of wonder on their face, like they're actually witnessing something that they almost can't explain. And, and I appreciate how you have, you know, gracefully molded the, the, the beauty and the magic of it into what is a real world problem that we're facing, and how we can how we can reclaim a certain amount of responsibility and stewardship and 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 reliance on community as opposed to reliance on big business so i appreciate that and so that's the impact yeah (laughs) i'm glad that came across and i'm just i'm really grateful for the people that you know open their hearts to me because i could not have done it with all the people who you know were able to share that and and i'm i'm Super happy that came across. Yeah, the, everybody who contributed and spoke on the film, just they had profound and moving things to say. So now let's talk about where other people can see and be moved by your film. Yeah, well, I'm happy to say that the film was just released on DVD and digital platforms, and that's in partnership with our distributor, a True Mind. And people can purchase the film from OpenSesameMovie.com which does help us rather than going to Amazon. There's nothing wrong with going to Amazon, but it's, it's especially helpful <laughs> when you go to our website. <laughs> and uh, Open Sesame is also available for community screenings, and uh, we have info on that as well. Um, I love to see it shown in various communities, and sometimes I've been able to do Skype Q&As, or sometimes I, oh, I go cool. in person, and I love to connect with people and, and answer any questions. So. What a great idea. I'm getting visions of like couples huddled around their computer with a, you know, a bowl of organic popcorn or communities having some organic popcorn while they watch the film. And I think that's just a really special way for people to reconnect <laughs> yeah, to something. Organic. It has to be organic. And you, you can't get organic <laughs> yeah. popcorn when you go to a theater. I mean, I'm constantly searching which theaters around the country have non-GMO popcorn. <laughs> the one in your home. So in your home, you can get open sesame. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. That's Sean Kaminsky, well, director and producer of Open Sesame, the story of seats. Again, opensesamemovie.com for more information and viewing opportunities. Who joined us today from Brooklyn, New York. Great to have you. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. I appreciate you guys taking the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank Wonderful you. Wonderful work. Talk to you Thanks. soon. Bye-bye. And that's Open Sesame in this hour of a close look at the world's seed supply. How fun. I love the way he talked about it. This is a, it's a, it's a delicate subject. I mean, I don't want to say it's something we should tread lightly on because that's really in some cases the opposite way we need to approach this because we have lost, we have lost so many seeds and we are quickly and and in larger capacity losing our control over seeds as other people have ownership over them. And then people who don't want to be a part of that system are being influenced as the, you know, GMO is drifting into their their fields and then they're losing their farms because they, they haven't paid for the patent that just showed up. So I think that um, he's done a beautiful job helping to educate people about this and not really coming at it just from that angle of we need to fight we need to fight the big corporations, but also instilling a wonder in this just absolutely crucial 
part of our food supply. And it's interesting, in, over the last you know, 50, 60 years, we have separated the environment from our food supply. There was agriculture, and agriculture had its issues, and people worked against that or within that system. And, and then we had the environment, and environmentalists worked you know, on, on pressing environmental issues. Those two have never really hmm. come together. Hmm. I've never seen the agricultural movement for sustainability and the environmental movement really merge and join hands Agriculture has always been seen as the culprit to to a large degree to the environmental movement. But there is this thing that brings it home, which is seeds and food supply that affects all of us, whether you're an environmentalist or whether you're an agriculturalist fighting for sustainability in agriculture. This topic brings it home to all of us. It's it's about what's on our plate um, every night and and how we survive as a species and, and change something that has been in place for millions of years and really in agriculture for 10,000 years. So maybe this is the topic where the environmental movement and the sustainable agriculture movement can join forces and, and shake hands over. Hmm. Speaking of miracle, I pulled out an older organic moment that I found. It's really short, but it's about a carrot seed that I want to finish off this topic of seeds in this hour of an organic conversation. A carrot seed is less than half a millimeter in diameter, a tiny speck of dirt, dust in the wind. And yet it contains millions of years of DNA, intelligence that, once put into soil with a bit of water, turns the seed into a big, orange, healthy, nutrient-rich, delicious, bioflavonoid-packed, eye-disease-preventing vegetable. And if this is not enough, halfway through the growing cycle, the seed knows to produce carrot tops, an exceptionally efficient solar power plant that supplies the carrot with energy, converting straight from sunlight through photosynthesis. During the growth from seed to carrot, the carrot collects and stores the climate data, including all environmental nuances of the region, such as soil quality, duration of sunshine, and so on, so that the next generation of seeds will be better equipped and adapted than the generations of carrots that have been eaten before. A carrot is a natural memory stick. What a miracle. Miracle indeed. <laughs> miracle indeed. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we're sticking with biodiversity because what's coming up, of course, is a look at what's in season an update from the produce dock with our very own Earl Herrick. That's what's next. Stay tuned. <laughs> you look like a Muppet as you dance to it. <laughs> and we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. 
Open Sesame, the story of seats, our topic in this hour, opensesamemovie.com. We spoke with the director and producer of that new documentary, Sean Kaminsky, who joined us from Brooklyn, New York. I really like what Sean had to say in regard to flavor, to Sita, you are a chef. It's such a difference when you follow a recipe and you buy, you know, commercially produced uh, vegetables versus heirloom, local Uh, you know, CSA box, whatever, whatever, wherever you get them and cook with that. I mean, yeah. sometimes you don't even the quality of, of diversity and local organic vegetables is so much higher that you can't mess up the recipe. It's such a difference. Is well, that your experience too? In, it is my experience. My experience is if you have really, really great produce and great flavor in that produce, then the recipe, it's pretty hard to mess up because it's going to taste delicious regardless because the ingredients are so fresh. And it, when I teach cooking classes and when I was at Bowman College as an instructor, it was something that I always encouraged the students to do, which was try the product raw before you start cooking with it because you may notice the tomato is sweeter and so you're going to balance it with more salt in your cooking or you etc cetera, etc cetera. there's more earthiness in the carrot that kind of thing one thing i do want to point out though is that at least in my experience moving from the midwest and coming to california is that this this local heirloom rich flavor all of that seems to be a bit of a luxury here it's so accessible we're we're in a we're in an area where people are really supporting this movement and of course it's grown over the last decades since I left the Midwest as well. But when my parents came to visit from Indiana and we went to the farmer's market here in San Francisco, I remember the look on my dad's face. He looked like a like a five-year-old boy, like he had never had grapes like this before in his life. And that's what he said to me. He said, I forgot that this is what they can taste like. And growing up in the Midwest, you just, there is, I think, I think in a lot of ways, the proportion or the percentage of industrial agriculture is, um, it's more, it's more than it is here. So I also want to be conscious of the fact that not everybody, it's not easy, as easy for everybody to find those heirloom varieties, but we're looking at how to make them more abundantly available around yeah, the country. Absolutely true. And California shouldn't feel bad about it because the growing conditions are sure. unlike any other regions maybe in the world. It's just exceptional soil and exceptional climate for most of the year to grow almost year-round in, in pockets, actually really year-round production of, of vegetables combined with high eco-literacy and may, yes. may that, you know, affect positively the rest of the country. Of sure, course. sure. And w well, at least what's interesting about this example is that I, you know, moved here my, from Indiana. And my parents, when they came to visit, they came from Indiana. So we're talking about a place that is hugely influenced by agriculture. And so, you know, it, they've got the growing conditions and, and they're growing a lot of our country's supply. And even still, Even still, um, it's it's a it's a hurdle to overcome to get the kind of flavor. Absolutely, we're staying with diversity and organic produce, because of course now it's time for what's in season with our very own Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, the voice of the San Francisco produce market. And is the voice of the San Francisco market with us? Earl, are you there? I am here. <laughs> Hello to you. 
Hey, we, we just had a great hour speaking about a new documentary, Open Sesame, the story of seeds and um, looking at diversity and, and how much through industrial agriculture that has been defined to one or two species. Uh, this yeah. is the antidote segment right now. Uh, <laughs> diversity, diversity. What is going on in the produce stock? What's, what's happening? What's really well, poking? Yeah. Oh, it's a great time of year. Uh, you know, spring is uh, springing all over the place. <laughs> and when you talk about diversity, you know, the topic I, that I want to talk about today is right down the middle of that, and that's carrots. There Ooh, is nice. so many different diverse uh, varieties grown for very specific reasons, for different, for different re regions. And so many of them, I'm, I'm so happy to say, are grown for that one thing that we look for, and that is for flavor. Because carrots, when you know what a real carrot is, when you eat a good one. Uh, mm -hmm. my, my kids grew up on, there's a farmer out here in California named John Givens, which may be familiar to some of the local folks. And my, my kids got to the point they wouldn't eat any other carrot than, other than what he was growing. And he grew, which a lot of smaller growers grow, and that's a Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S. And it's a variety that has lots of hybrids within that, But it's a non-take carrot is, generally speaking, the, the best of all worlds where it's, it's beautiful, it's crunchy, it's sweet. They have strong tops, so they're easier to harvest. And they, the sugar content is just off the hook. And not so much just for the sugar to enjoy, but it's the flavor that is so outstanding. So the, hmm. the carrot world is, is huge, uh, huge expanse, and you can get them all year round. And it's so it, it's so interesting. It's one of those vegetables like a banana, right? It's I think a banana yeah. is still the most eaten fruit out there every day on 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 average within the uh, throughout the United States and maybe even the world. Is where does carrots rank? And I don't mean yeah. to put you on the spot, but it seems like <laughs> we it's it's an it's a produce item that we don't talk about much. It's yeah. just there, and yet it, it's I mean, how many millions of pounds of carrots are we eating every every day or throughout the year? It is mm -hmm. it's a staple. It's a, it's as a staple as much as a potato for most people, and yet it doesn't really get the recognition because it's you know it's a carrot. People don't know varieties of carrots yeah. necessarily. Yeah. I was thinking about that as, as I was uh, thinking about this uh, segment, and in my memory, I do not remember ever talking about carrots in, as a very... <laughs> oh, see? <laughs> I, I, really, I really don't. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of those things, as you're saying. The, for us, it's one of the... Uh, it may be the number one commodity, and, and, and that wow. is a, there's a lot of different reasons. And that is, one, is that it is available in so many configurations. What I mean by that, you can buy, uh, you can go into a store and there's a whole big, huge display of what we call loose carrots. Then there's another display of bunch carrots. Then there's another display of, of little baby peeled carrots in little eight-ounce plastic bags. And there's another display of, of, uh, of two-pound packages, five-pound packages. And then you get the 25-pound juice carrots. So the, all those configurations are, are mass into a huge volume of sales. Because so many people have different uh, different uses, some people, you know, it's one of the major components of juice, and of course, juicing is off the charts now, mm -hmm. not only Absolutely. in personal use yeah. but commercial use too. So, Earl, what about? So, you just talked about a bunch of different varieties that we see in most grocery stores, but what about some of the novelty carrots, like the purple carrots and the yeah. white carrots, and the? Can you tell us about those? Well, 
not a whole lot other than we carry them. In my experience, in our in our consumers' experience, they lack what I brought. What I started this conversation with, and that is the sweetness. Hmm, I mean, they're yeah. they're very pretty. Mm-hmm. They're they're very attractive. There's a, there's a great kind of talking point to it. But when when it comes down to repeat sales, which really uh, rely on flavor and demand, it, it doesn't really have it. So it's more of it remains in that category of novelty. Uh-huh. Um, that being said, carrots is probably one of the most researched and developed items out there, like strawberries and apples, where there's wow. constant, constant development of a hybrid that either doesn't need a sandy soil or has better flavor or looks better. So I'm quite sure that they're developing better tasting purple carrots for sure, and also the red ones and those, and those pale ones. So, yeah. That's, and of, that's, of course, through natural breeding techniques within the species, yes. since this show was much about biotechnology in organic, that is not allowed. So these are um, oh, yeah. breeding principles that, uh, you know, go on over years until it's stable, yeah. really just using the best traits of one carrot and trying to mix it with the best traits of another carrot. Yes. When we come to sweetness from a consumer point of view, sometimes carrots can taste soapy. Do you know what the reason for that can be? Well, that's a, you know, I like, know that, that, that registers in my memory somewhere years and years ago. Like a little um, chemical, you know, yeah. subtext, well, a little bitter. What, what, why yeah, why well, are they sometimes sweet and sometimes bitter? Yeah, good question. Well, first of all, any root product, think uh, carrots and beets and turnips, they're sweetest when they're able to be grown in the winter where that cold weather sets the sugar mm. in the root. Sure. So really, the best growers that I deal with are, are harvesting carrots October through May. Obviously, though, we buy carrots throughout the year. So when you're buying carrots in the summer, they've been exposed to that high heat, and they just are not as sweet. And they definitely do reflect a bitter taste on many occasions. So the growers that we deal with, though we do grow, we deal with a big one like Grimway, who's the biggest carrot grower in, in the world, but also we have probably at least one or two handfuls of smaller growers doing the very specific time of year. Uh, T&D Willie, very well known out in California. She's in Madera, right in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. She, she Her carrot harvest is October through May, and she has like about at least more than a dozen plantings mm. that allow her to keep her harvest going through that period of time. So, so really the best time to be enjoying the best of carrots is in the winter. Basically right now. Right now, exactly. And this is really when you can get your kids totally aligned to eating, <laughs> eating mm, something. Such a good uh, you know, tip. That, that, oh, that, good vegetable. that is so good. Such a good tip. <laughs> don't, don't do it as a school is back in August. That is the <laughs> lowest point of, of carrot quality <laughs> and sweetness, you're saying. That's such a good tip. Yeah. And so. the other thing about growing in the winter is that that's when they're juiciest because uh, they're not getting dried out in the summer with huh. the heat. Sure. So, you know, you get the best of all worlds. You get the most juice and the sweetest, and they're also the prettiest because that deep color really gets set, like the deep orange really gets set again in, a, in the winter. Wow. So great. No okay, thank you, Earl. That's <laughs> Enjoy so fun. Now. It's carrot we season. Will. This is it. Thank you, Earl, so much from the update from the produce doc, and we'll have you back next week. Outstanding. Thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks. You. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
Oh, I remember in Europe we have, um, they're called moor carrots, swamp carrots. They're like as black as you can imagine. And even if you scrub them under warm water, they stay really, really, really dark. They're grown in dark black swamp-like material. And so, yeah, it, carrots love it. And the flavor, because it takes up all the minerals mm. of that really, really dark, rich soil is is ridiculous it's outstanding <laughs> carrots <laughs> so underrated how fun yeah i certainly have a craving for carrots right now when he was describing that sweet crunch i knew exactly what he was talking about yeah let's get mm. some carrots okay great <laughs> that's an organic conversation i'm helga hilbert and i'm sitarani palomar our topic open sesame the story of seeds check it out open sesame movie.com we'll see you again next week An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash an organic conversation thank you for your contribution an organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters earl's organic produce a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store home or business since 1988 the website is earlsorganic.com and also fry vineyards america's first certified organic winery producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.